Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. This is Chris with you again today. Thanks so much for joining our podcast again. On this episode, Daniel McCoy, who is our editor at Renew, and Bobby Harrington, our point leader, talk about how to disciple people into a biblical worldview. This is taken from a recent trip that they made to Ozark Christian College, where they did a teaching seminar. We really hope you can take some tips from this and be able to really get some practical tools into how to disciple people. Let's go ahead and check this out together. It's good to see you all. I'm with uh, Renew.org and um, also part-time professor here at Ozark. And uh, welcome to Discipling People into a Biblical Worldview. Um, The uh, video that you just saw is is made by Renew and uh, talking about, you know, self-inspired theology. And a lot of people, that's where where they're at. They're in a place where uh, their their big picture view of reality is... uh, is out of themselves, and so uh, we're talking about how to how to help them. Um, Albert of Brandenburg was born in 1490. Was a German prince who was uh, also an archbishop of two archbishoprics. Uh, wanted a third archbishopric. He uh, had to borrow the money though to be able to pay the church. And so the way that he paid them back was by selling indulgences throughout Germany. And that way, Albert was able to get his third archbishopric. And with the money. Uh, from this, uh, Pope Leo X was then able to build St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah. Uh, and, a, and a professor named, what's his name? A uh, German professor named Martin Luther. He, he gets upset of the indulgences. He posts why these are wrong, all these reasons why this is wrong. He finds himself running for his life. Now, for Archbishop Albert, what's the big picture? For Albert, you know, even though he's an archbishop of the church, What's the big picture? It wasn't exactly Christianity, was it? For him, the big picture is getting more land, getting a higher position. Somewhere within that big picture, you got a little bit of Christianity. Uh, Paul Knitter, uh, K-N-I-T-T-E-R, Paul Knitter, born in 1939. He's become a fairly well-known theology professor. He's done quite well in academia. He's a professor, now emeritus at Union Theological Seminary. Married a Buddhist meditation teacher named Kathy Cornell. And Paul has officially written a book called Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. Uh, He officially identifies as a Buddhist Christian. And here's how he describes it. He says, when it comes to my big picture view of reality, he says, I'm a Buddhist. Uh, When it comes to filling in that big picture with living color, I'm a Christian. Uh, And especially when it comes to Christianity's compassion for the poor and the marginalized, that sort of thing. So for him, Buddhism provides a big picture. Christianity provides some living color. Nadia Boltz Weber, born in 1969, grew up in a conservative Church of Christ uh, in Colorado Springs, went to Pepperdine for a semester, uh, really rejected her conservative upbringing, got heavily involved in drugs and alcohol, took up paganism for a while, through a friend's suicide, uh, found herself drawn back to Christianity, but a more progressive kind, um, where they affirm you know, all sexual orientations and gender identity. She actually started a church specifically for that, uh, for, for a full affirming church. Um, in Denver, and uh, she teaches that if, if you believe that the Bible says that homosexuality is, uh, is a sin, then you are guilty of Bible idolatry um, at this church that she, uh, that, that she created. You know, they have a drag queen on staff. They call the uh, Minister of Fabulousness. 
Uh, she's now a public theologian for the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA. And Nadia made news in 2018 by asking women to send in their purity rings from their time in evangelical purity culture. She took these rings that women sent in. She uh, took them, melted them, uh, crafted them into a sculpture of female genitalia with the word freedom inscribed along its base. Then on Valentine's Day of 2019, she presented this sculpture to renowned feminist Gloria Steinem all in the name of Jesus. But for Nadia, what's the big picture? Nadia's goal is to create a place of belonging for spiritual misfits and for sexual minorities. That's the goal. That's her big picture. And what does she use to kind of give living color to that big picture? Well, big picture, again, is a place of of sexual liberation and full affirmation fleshed out through the living color of some elements of Christianity. Daniel McCoy, born in 1985, grew up in a Christian uh, family, uh, preacher's kid, went to Bible college, went to seminary, uh, is a Christian, believes in the authority of the Bible. For him, Christianity is the big picture. But some days, he forgets that. Some days, uh, the big picture for him is a worldview called Danielism, uh, which uh, consists of people admiring Daniel and Daniel getting his way and Daniel being a success and Some days for him, that's his big picture, and Christianity just plays a part in that bigger picture. I'm not alone. There are a lot of Christians for whom Christianity helps them cope when they're going through troubles, and and for whom Christianity gives them inspiration, weekly inspiration, to keep dreaming big, Um, but for whom Christianity is not really the big picture. For them, Christianity is something that supplements their actual big picture with some living color. Christianity enhances, it inspires, it encourages, but it's in the service of a bigger picture, of a bigger dream, of a different gospel. Okay, what do we mean by discipling people into a biblical worldview? We mean, uh, how do we disciple people to where it takes them from seeing biblical Christianity as just part of the picture to seeing Christianity as the big picture. So that biblical Christianity forms their world view, their view of the whole world. So that the Bible gives them their answers to life's biggest questions, not just their official answers, uh, but it provides them with their deepest convictions. Sadly, we can't assume that just because people go to church that they have a what? Biblical worldview, right? We can't assume that because just because we go to church that we have a biblical world, just because we, uh, you know, just because we read the Bible, or just because we went to Bible college, that we have a biblical view of reality. Um, a recent nationwide survey shows that only 37 percent of America's Christian pastors have a biblical uh, worldview when it comes to. Uh, uh, the senior ministers, they're the ones with the highest percentage. 41% of them uh, would have a Christian worldview. Uh, when it comes to children's ministers, youth ministers, that number goes down to about 12% having a biblical worldview. That was a study conducted by George Barna and Arizona Christian University. Now, how they discover how people have a biblical worldview and who doesn't is they ask around 50 questions uh, about God and human nature and lifestyle choices and sin and salvation. And, and there are Christian answers to those questions, but there's also post-truth answers, and there's atheistic answers, and there's Marxist answers, and Eastern religious answers, and and based on that particular survey, only 37% 
of America's Christian pastors have a biblical view of reality. And that's the church leaders. Those who are supposed to be the most qualified to disciple people into a biblical view of reality. Now, I've got progressive friends, progressive Christian friends, who hate when I talk about the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview, they ask. And let me guess, your version of Christianity just happens to be the biblical worldview, right? And I could get how that could be frustrating, uh, that I could say that there is such a thing as having a biblical worldview, uh, and that not all Christians have it. Uh, I could see how that could frustrate people, that George Barna, you know, gives you 54 questions, and based on that, he knows whether or not you have a biblical worldview. I could get why that's kind of frustrating for, for progressives, but I do have to say, um, although there are things in the Bible which are a bit confusing and for which there is room for healthy debate among Christians, man, there are a lot of things in the Bible which are not confusing, maybe unpopular, but not confusing. And so I think it's a really good thing to talk about a biblical view of the world. And, and no, we don't want to get sectarian about it. You know, we don't want to sneak in my political preferences or my church's doctrines and say, well, if you really want to have a biblical worldview, you got to have my, you got to adopt my politics. You got to, you got to adopt my doctrines. We don't want to say that, but we do want to disciple people into having a biblical, big picture view of the world. Especially since it's incredibly easy to feel Christian, uh, and yet for Christianity to just play a small part in the larger worldview. So, where do we start with that? Um, where do we start in discipling people to have a truly biblical view of reality based in biblical truth? Uh, let's go back in time. For my family, it was uh, early December. Uh, sun, you know, it was always a Sunday. It was about four. It was always the four o'clock. We were usually in the balcony back there, and they had this giant what on the stage here? A giant. Christmas tree, right? Because it was a living Christmas tree, right? Raise your hand if you miss it. <laughs> it was awesome. And uh, each year, you know, the songs might be different. The story would be different. Uh, but each year, there was always the same climactic moment. Uh, the, it would all get dark, and the lights would then start flickering all over the stage, and the music would get louder and louder. And then all of a sudden, all the stage lights would come on full blast, and people would pop up from inside the tree, and they would start singing to you. Like, wow, it's human ornaments singing. I mean, this, that's interesting, right? And now, to be honest, for me, that moment was always epic. Always. Loved it. Thought it was awesome. We came every year. One year, I came three times. Um, for one performance, I didn't even have a ticket. I, I literally uh, sneaked in uh, because that year, the lovely Susanna Lang, uh, now Susanna McCoy, amen, uh, was the second uh, second row from the top, and it was it was it was wonderful. Uh, and then one year, we bring a group from church, and uh, they had never seen the living Christmas. They'd never seen a living Christmas tree before, and so they they watch. And after I'm like, "What'd you think? It was awesome, right?" And uh, and here's what they said. They said, well, it was, it was pretty cool until the faces popped up and started singing uh, to us. And, and I'm like, no, 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 that was the best part. They're like, no, it was weird. I'm like, no, it was epic. And, uh, and, and the more I thought about it, the more, you know, if, if you weren't familiar with it, I could see how it could be a little strange to have human ornaments singing to you. Okay, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1. If you've got your phones or your, uh, or your Bibles, you might turn to uh, Mark, chapter 1. And I'm going to share a similar moment from the Gospel of Mark 
Uh, John the Baptist is preaching about the need to repent. The Messiah is coming. He's going to bring the kingdom. Jesus shows up on the horizon, gets baptized, voice from heaven. This is my son, 40 days in the desert, duking it out with the devil, wins three to nothing. Meanwhile, John gets put in prison, and it's time to hand off his official. It's time for Jesus the Messiah to officially begin his ministry. Jesus comes on the scene, and listen to how epic this is. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what he says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And I don't know if you can hear it or not, but the music has been growing louder. The stage lights are flickering wildly. Uh, uh, everything from Genesis up to this point has been building to this crescendo. And uh, the time has come. The kingdom is here. And then we get to the next verse. And Jesus goes from the kingdom has come, repent and believe the good news, Oh my goodness, this is so epic. To the next verse, what's he doing in the next verse? Hanging out with a couple of fishermen. Now, we're familiar with the story. That's not weird to us, but it is weird. It, 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 is, it is strange. Just like I was, I was familiar with the human ornaments singing to me every year. Uh, this is part, just part of my Christmas. Uh, I, objectively, it's a little different, though. It's not what we were expecting this to crescendo to in Mark chapter 1. Why? It's weird. Why? Well, it's because Jesus should be having dinner with the governor. He should be sitting down with the high priest and, and, and discussing the kingdom with the high priest. He should be calling a meeting with the most prominent teachers of the law and saying, hey, what you've been teaching is fulfilled in me. Instead, all of history comes to this moment and uh, there's this climactic crescendo. And what's he doing? He's hanging out with a couple of fishermen. He's basically building his kingdom with a couple mechanics he met while he was getting his car worked on. Yeah, he's building his kingdom by striking up a conversation with the guys picking up his trash on Friday morning. These two guys, uh, uh, a couple of fishermen, nobody's, nobody's ever heard of, and uh, they're not masters of theology. They're not politically powerful. They're not culturally influential. They're a couple of blue-collar fishermen. Why these guys? Do you know why Jesus chose to hang out with fishermen instead of scholars? Fishermen instead of governors and high priests. You know why we get verse 16? We get verse 16 because of a phrase in verse 15. So hopefully you're still there. Verse 15. We get something. We get verse 16 because of something very important Jesus says in verse 15. What does he say in the last part of that verse? He says, believe the what? The good news. Believe the gospel. Mark 1.15, the time has come, he says, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, and believe the good news. Now, you want to know why Jesus chose to build his kingdom with fishermen. It has everything to do with the words, believe the good news. That's a really important sentence. The word believe is another way of saying, put your faith in, put your complete trust in. Sometimes it means put your complete loyalty and allegiance in. Jesus says, place your faith, your trust, go all in, your loyalty, on what? And Jesus says, place your faith in the good news. And good news, of course, is another way of saying gospel, or gospel is another way of saying good news. So in this verse, you've got four huge Bible words. You've got repent, you've got kingdom, you've got repent, you've got faith, you've got gospel. And again, Jesus says, the kingdom is here. So repent, which means to change your what? Change your mind. And believe, put your faith in the what? 
the gospel, the good news. And that's why Jesus hung out with fishermen. You think about it. Jesus, who else could Jesus hang out with? You know, Jesus could have hung out with the really good people in society. Uh, the Pharisees, right? What's the problem with that, though? The, the Pharisees didn't believe in his gospel. They had their own good news. For them, it was good news for good people. You know, Jesus came with a gospel that was good news for everybody, especially sinners. You know, Jesus could have hung out with the Sadducees, right? Uh, the rich, politically powerful Sadducees. The Sadducees in charge, you know, in charge of the temple. They really, really connected with the government. But they didn't believe in Jesus' good news. The Sadducees had their own good news. Their gospel was good news for the rich and powerful. Yet Jesus came with a gospel as good news for everybody, especially the poor. You know, Jesus could have hung out with the zealots. These were people who hated the Romans because the Romans had occupied their territory. And so the zealots were really angry. They wanted to drive the Romans out. Violence for the cause of freeing their country. And uh, I guess Jesus could have hung out with the zealots, but the zealots had their own big-picture version of reality. For the zealots, their gospel is good news for oppressed people, for their people. Yet Jesus came with a gospel that was good news for the physically oppressed, yeah, but also for the spiritually oppressed, which is literally everybody, even the Romans. So the zealots didn't believe in Jesus' gospel. They thought they had a better gospel. Jesus says, believe in my good news. And the people with all the righteousness say, I got a better gospel than that. The people with all the money say, I got a better gospel than that. The people sharpening their knives say, I've got a better gospel than that. And so Jesus starts his kingdom with a couple of fishermen. He says, I've got the best news you can imagine. I'm bringing a kingdom and it's for whosoever. It's for fishermen. It's for filthy rich tax collectors that nobody likes. It's for people who are poor and can't pay their bills. It's for the untouchables like lepers. It's for the unlovables like the lady with all the demons. This kingdom is for whosoever. Okay, how do we disciple people into a biblical, big-picture view of reality? How do we do it? So that they get life's biggest questions answered by biblical truth. Where do we start? We start by converting them to Jesus' gospel. We invite them and ourselves to see the gospel as the best news imaginable. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, change your mind, and believe the good news. So, who believes Jesus' good news? Who, who's all in with his gospel? Who's willing to place their full trust and allegiance and loyalty and faith into the good news that Jesus brings. Well, there's a couple of fishermen. Jesus says, okay, I'll start with them. I'll start my kingdom with them. How do we disciple people into a biblical worldview? I'm just about done with, with my uh, portion, then we're going to have Bobby Harrington come up and, uh, and back clean up. Uh, but uh, how do we do it? How do, how, do we, how do we start with helping people really place their faith in his gospel. We, we start by converting them to the gospel, calling them to, first of all, repent of the false gospels they've, in which they've placed their sense of identity, the false gospels that have given them their do's and don'ts, the false gospels that have given them their grand view uh, or their grand vision of what can be, calling them to repent of those gospels change their mind about those views of reality, and urging them to place their faith in Jesus' gospel. 
sing Jesus as the saving, risen King, and sing that as the best news imaginable. Seeing that, celebrating that as big picture reality, Jesus is a saving King. His kingdom come. His will be done in my life as it is in heaven. We disciple people into a biblical worldview by giving them the gospel of Jesus as the best imaginable big picture view of reality. I was listening to C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again recently, and Lucy is entering the wardrobe for the first time. And Lewis says over and over, she went further in and further in and further in. And, and you know, in the further in she goes, what happens? There's, she's like, whoa, there's this whole world inside this wardrobe that this, wardrobe's op- this wardrobe opens into. The further that you and I take people into the gospel, the more they begin to see this isn't just a way to enhance my life and inspire me. This is an invitation to a much bigger world. There really is an icy enemy turning flesh into stone. There really is a lion who sacrifices himself for the traitor. We sons of Adam and daughters of Eve really are called to become royalty. We disciple people into a biblical view of reality by urging them to repent of their false views of reality and believe in Jesus' gospel. Do that. And it'll do more than rock their world. It'll become their world. I'm going to have Bobby Harrington come up, the CEO of, of Renew.org and Discipleship.org. Thank you, Dan. Wasn't that good, everybody? Uh, we are really glad to be here. And uh, I just want to tell you why this conversation is so important. And uh, I want to, uh, I'm actually framing this from the conversation that we just had. So I'm going to assume some things. And uh, uh, if, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you can go back and get the recording or uh, we would encourage you to read some of the literature that's been published on discipleship.org and renew.org. When God wanted to redeem the world, He sent his son into the world, and he became incarnate as a human being. He was fully human and fully God. But he epitomized love, and what Jesus did for his disciples is he entered into their world, he became one of them, he built a relationship with them, and then in the midst of building that relationship with them, he invited them into the kingdom of God. At the heart of uh, what the gospel is, is the person of Jesus. Jesus, in his totality, is the gospel. Now there's a center of the gospel. It's the kingdom of God, and it's Jesus' uh, work that we're going to talk about. When you look at the life of Jesus, who was the best disciple maker there ever was, and Jesus knew, as Daniel pointed out, that there were all these false gospels, false good news, false ways of religion, he wanted to, them to understand the kingdom and that as the Messiah, the promised Messiah of David, he was the essential element in God's revelation. Jesus taught them many things, but he began with and he centered it in the gospel, in his person. And that is what in scripture is most essential. Now there's two things about the gospel There's who Jesus is and what he has done. And then there's a response to the gospel that is essential, that is repentant faith. In following Jesus, it's very important 
to have a good starting point, centering in Jesus, and then build everything else moving outward. So as we're discipling people, we start with the gospel, we start with Jesus, then we move from that to the secondary but important teachings, and then beyond that, our third level of teachings. So if I can, uh, I'm going to skip ahead to the definition of the gospel, and I'd like you to look at it with me. So here is the gospel, uh, and um, we're drawing upon Matthew Bates, who's a part of our Renew Network and who's written a book called The Gospel Precisely. And one of the things that I want to do that is often not done today is delineate the gospel, the response to the gospel, and then the gospel benefits. Because if we delineate these three things, then I I believe that we're going to do better at helping understand what we're going to do. Before I jump into the gospel, here's what I want to talk to you about. We believe in discipling people into the gospel, and we believe that the way Jesus made disciples is the best way to make disciples, and that the church today has to go back to Jesus' method of disciple-making. Jesus' method of disciple-making was intentional, relational disciple-making. What that means is that for Jesus, he invited uh, men into a relationship with him. As he was in relationship with them, maybe 90 to 120 of them, in the midst of that, he said to a group of 12, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When he did that, he gives us a good way to frame a definition of a disciple. A disciple is somebody who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and who's joining the mission of Jesus or the mission of God. So when Jesus did that, he invested his life, particularly in three, Peter, James, and John. And when Jesus is doing that, every day he's waking up and intentionally discipling these men, but he wants them to understand that he is different than the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. But he does it by handcrafting them, not by giving them sermons, not by telling them to take classes. It was life on life where he helped them to integrate, understand, and obey his teachings. We believe that we've got to go back to that same model today because people are coming into our churches with a worldview that is not built around the gospel. And they come into our churches and they have a thousand other different gospels. And so we do want to, to have good sermons. But what we want to do is we want to, we want to invite them into a relationship where we can rebuild their understanding of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, of life in Christ, of obedience. We rebuild and do the foundational work that even 10 years ago we just assumed in evangelical churches and in churches across the land because what's happened is people have been out-discipled by the world. So when we talk about starting with the gospel, we're talking about the cornerstone and the foundation of discipling people into a worldview. Um, The gospel is the good news that Jesus the King, by the way, the, the word Christ, it means Messiah, which meant king. If you just go back to 2 Samuel 7, you go back to Ezekiel 34, 35, 36, the Christ or Messiah is king. It's the Davidic king. Jesus is the king. He's the king, and here's 10 key parts of the gospel. He preexisted with God the Father. He uh, was sent by the Father. He took on human flesh 
in fulfillment of God's promises to David. He lived as humanity's example and teacher and Messiah. So the teaching of Jesus, not just his death, burial, and resurrection, the teaching of Jesus, the person of Jesus, is a part of the gospel. Uh, he died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to many witnesses. He was enthroned at the right hand of God as the ruling Christ. At the center of the gospel, the thing that the gospel points to is Jesus Christ is reigning today. He's king of kings today. We're in a kingdom for his followers, and he's our king. And he sent the Holy Spirit uh, to his people to affect his rule. And then lastly, he's coming again as final judge to rule. Can I ask you a question? How many people do you think are living today with an acute awareness that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead? I don't think that that's part of the way people think anymore. But it's a crucial part of the gospel. So far, so good, everybody? So we disciple people into this, and then it becomes the basis by which we disciple people into other things. Let me give you an example. So a couple of years ago, in the church that where I serve as the lead minister, uh, we had uh, a worship leader who uh, wanted to move back to be near his family in Arkansas. And so we were looking for some people to help lead praise and worship on Sunday in a temporary way. And there was a man that we got to, to meet, and he self-admitted that uh, he had grown up believing in Jesus, but he still believed in Jesus, but he really liked progressive ideas about Jesus on sexuality and on the nature of Scripture. And, and his wife was with him in that. But he said, um, I'm, I'm open to talking about these things. So uh, my wife and I uh, agreed that we would spend time with them. We would invest in them. And so I, I, I did that. We, I, I remember taking them to a hockey game. And you know the best conversations, by the way, when on the way to a hockey game and then the two and a half hours of the hockey game and then a conversation on the way home. And, and uh, I asked them to take classes. I asked them to read material every week. But I knew this. I knew that I had to help him to see, first and foremost, who Jesus was what the gospel was, and how Jesus then invested his authority in the words of Scripture. So we had many conversations back and forth. He told me of all the podcasts he'd been listening to and all the things that he had heard, and we just kept, we just kept spending time together in the word. And he started to say to me, so this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus said. Yes. And he said, I started looking for the first time at the literal words of Jesus. And I remember he kept saying this. I now am willing to believe the words of Jesus over what people told me about Jesus. So we kept the relationship up. Uh, one of the things we do in our church, we have two groups, uh, home groups and then transformation groups. I invited him into a home group, he and his wife, with my, my wife and I. We'd, we'd uh, uh, go on picnics. Uh, 
I really wanted Dave to see what it meant to be a disciple who makes disciples. And so uh, we had a lesbian couple start coming to the church. Uh, and uh, um, her name is Lauren. She introduced herself to me on Christmas Eve. She asked me if I wanted to meet her wife. And I said, I'd love to meet your wife. And so we started in a relationship with him. And I'm, I'm telling you this because everything doesn't work out just right. But in the midst of it, God is still working. So my wife and I, we were in this group with some people, with Dave and his wife. We're studying scripture. We're studying about Jesus. And the conviction about Jesus grows really strong in Dave. And he starts by looking at Jesus and being persuaded of the true gospel to give up his beliefs in the progressive Jesus. And in the midst of it, he starts to believe some really important teachings that aren't the gospel, but are taught by the king of the gospel. Like, the husband is the leader in the home, who's to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. And he starts acting on that. He starts stepping up to the plate, and his wife starts to notice, and his wife starts to love the man he's becoming. And then she started to hear the gospel again, even though she'd grown up with it. And the next thing I knew, they show up at, at, at one of our groups, and Summer says, I want to be baptized. I'm not sure I really understood the gospel back then, and I want to be baptized. And so Dave baptizes his wife. Now, Dave is starting to follow a lot of teachings of Jesus that are very difficult to follow if you are not centered first and foremost in the gospel of the kingdom and the person of Jesus. Now, as he's watching it, we're trying to be as authentic as we can. This, uh, we, we're, we're investing, and it's for a year and a half, in a, in a couple, uh, these two women. And they're in our groups, they're in our homes. We're, we're trying to disciple them to commit their lives to the gospel. Time and time again, they come up to it and they don't want to give up their lifestyle for the sake of the gospel. And we walk through those painful conversations that real faith in King Jesus means a faith that is faithful and obedient. We cannot have a faithful faith and deliberately live in sexually sinful lifestyles. I could have never told Dave that as leaning a progressive Christian, but when he got to, through discipling relationships, see how it was lived out and how it was an expression of love, he has become very persuaded of these even harder teachings. So what we're talking about is an understanding that faith is to trust and follow Jesus, it's allegiance, loyalty, and faithfulness. That saving faith is faithful faith. If we can go to the next slide. Here's the King Jesus gospel, if I were to sum it up for you. Jesus is the saving king. What are the gospel benefits? We enter his kingdom now and in eternity after this life. So we have a king. The good news is his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection his exaltation, he's our saving king, and he's coming back. The benefits are life with him now and in eternity, and the gospel response is faith, loyalty, 
allegiance, and ultimately to faithfulness. So here's how we disciple people into living by faith in King Jesus as his disciples. We have a core orientation. Uh, Living by faith in King Jesus is a core orientation of faithful faith in Jesus and his gospel. Then secondarily, we obey the important teachings because we are loyal to King Jesus. One of the really big difficulties, if I can just pause here right now, is that a lot of us have been persuaded that there's only two categories. That which is essential and that which is non-essential. And it used to be that a lot of things were essential, including things that shouldn't have been essential, and then it was optional. Robertus Meldinius, Martin Luther's friend, had the expression, uh, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. I can tell you right now, trying to disciple people into a biblical worldview, that which is essential is just in their minds a simple faith, trust in Jesus, that does not connect with faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus. And what we're advocating, and one of the reasons why Renew was started, is to take the best of Christian church or restoration movement theology and try to say, here's what's essential. Here's what's really important and part of being faithful to King Jesus. Your eternal destiny may not depend on how you handle certain things. For example, your eternal destiny may not depend whether you appoint women to be elders in the church or not, but the faithfulness of the church could be affected by appointing women to be elders in the church. And if you believe in King Jesus, you believe that his word is the final authority and it is our job to align ourselves and to obey all of his teachings. But we start with the gospel. So important teachings, we learn to understand and obey all teachings. And then lastly, personal and disputable teachings, we learn to understand and apply those with wisdom. If you're unfamiliar with who Renew.org is, I want to just take one second and tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're all about. We care a ton about the theology behind Jesus-style disciple-making and really creating that firm foundation for churches and organizations to build upon. We invite you to check us out at Renew.org where we have free resources, ebooks, podcasts, and also we have a national conference that we have every year. And we're gathering in Indianapolis this year on April 25th and 26th. We just invite you to grab some tickets, check us out online, and see what we're all about.